Hello and welcome to the St Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Simon Carley and today I'm going to be taking you through, a little bit later than planned, the February papers and blogs on the St Emlyn's Podcast. So, what did you miss back in February? You can remember, you can always go back and have a look yourself. It's all there, it's all on the blog, I'm ready to have a look. But there was some interesting stuff actually. Um, I had the honour of going out to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia to join the Saudi Arabian Society of Emergency Medicine. Really interesting place, Jeddah. Lots and lots of things going on, lots of things changing. And although Saudi Arabia is a very different country to the UK, I found that the people there, the emergency physicians, many of whom have trained abroad in Canada, in the US, in the UK, are kindred spirits. They have the same values and the same ideas around treating emergency patients that we do. So although we come from very different societies, we definitely share the same sort of clinical values. I was um, invited to go through uh, the 10 top papers out there, 10 top trauma papers. And again, I quite like doing those. I've I've listed them all on the website, but a couple of highlights. Obviously, the PAMPA trial um, was up there, the airway papers around um, cardiac arrest management, because actually we did more than just trauma. So things like the Airways uh, 2 study, looking at superoxia in the critically ill, uh, intubation, ED, use of bougies, of course, which we advocate at St. Emlyn's, um, conservative management of pneumothoraces, something we've spoken about before, and the reality is that we're doing this a lot more now, and it's actually safe to manage, well, actually, probably the majority of traumatic pneumothoraces, particularly those that you just see on CT. But anyway, that went through a whole bunch of stuff, many of which we've blogged about on the site already. So go back and have a look at those if you just want a, a quick reminder of the top 10 papers from this year. But again, uh, our colleagues in uh, Saudi Arabia are um, great, great hosts and a lot of common ground between the type of medicine we're trying to practice in the UK and the type of medicine they're trying to practice out there. There was then a great post again from our friend and colleague Rusty Carroll looking at PTSD. Now you've probably seen and read, I hope, um, Rusty's previous blogs on his recovery from PTSD as a result of his work within the ambulance service and I think this one brings us a little bit more up to date it's his story post therapy and him trying to get back into work and trying to develop a new life a different life from the one that he had before but one which is very rewarding and successful I think you need to read the whole series of those to to get an impression but we all know people who've been affected by the work that they do and unfortunately and sadly many of us know people who've had to change careers or had to change significant aspects of their life as a result and I think if you are experiencing it yourself or if you know anybody else who is struggling reading Rusty's series is very helpful you may not take the same journey as him you may not choose the same therapies as him but actually understanding that there is a journey there to be had is is very valuable we then had a look at a journal club paper about why do bleeding trauma patients die and I think this is fascinating this is a really it's an editorial as much as anything from uh, Karen Brohe and John Holcomb in critical care medicine and it really challenges I think a lot of what we have imagined are the causes of death from trauma and what this basically says is that we have made a change. The systems that we put in place, the pre-hospital systems, the emergency management, the damage control surgery, have made a real difference to how we manage our trauma patients. So now the proportion of patients who die pre-hospital has gone down. Actually, the proportion of patients who die within the first few hours in the emergency department has gone up, probably because we've reduced the number of people who died in the pre-hospital environment. Those things work together, if you think about it. 
But then really interestingly is we're seeing a greater proportion of mortality quite late on, 24 hours down the line. And it does seem that we're seeing now a difference in the causes of death. And we're seeing this late systematic immunosuppression, persistent inflammation, catabolism syndromes, which are causing late death. So we're getting people out of theatre, even despite having very severe injuries with normal temperature, normal coagulation, apparently stop bleeding, and yet they're still dying later on. And there are several ways you can look at this. You can say, well, okay, well, actually, the overall number dying is less. That's true. But I think it also tells us that the trauma story is not yet finished, that there is still work to do. And perhaps in the critical care phases and understanding the processes that take place then and why these people die late of this circulatory collapse, this inflammatory immunosuppressed process, there's more work to be done there. And I think uh, we're a victim of our success here. But read the paper, actually, and, and think about what John and Karim have said We've not yet solved trauma. We are entering a new phase and understanding new syndromes and new ways to understand um, the course of our most severely injured patients. We then had another Journal Club paper published by Natalie May. And this is a follow-up, really, from the PESIT study. You may remember the PESIT study. It was a study done in Italy which showed or suggested that the instance of PE um, as a result of syncope was really high, much higher than we imagined. And there was quite a lot of controversy about this um, along a lot of the sites, including EM Nerd, MCRIT, EM Lit of Note, Rebel EM, and, and ourselves. We were quite sceptical about this. And so we were interested to read this paper from colleagues in the North American Syncope Consortium that showed that the prevalence of pulmonary embolence is actually pretty low amongst ED patients with syncope. And that's that's important because the original study was done in in-hospital patients. In ED patients, which is our group, it's actually pretty low. And even those that were hospitalised, it was still pretty low. So although we've still got to think about P as a cause of syncope, in the absence of other co- other symptoms and other signs, perhaps it's not an original PESIT study suggested. So, as Natalie says, I, I think we can now return to where we were before PESIT sort of made us really worried about these sort of things. And we can think that the instance of P is nowhere near as high as it was. And we can go back to doing things like well scoring and perk scoring and those sort of things and not just think that P is the sole cause of syncope in the undiagnosed patient. So that's, it's good actually because I think one of the, the, the principles of evidence-based medicine is you should always try and repeat a study to find out whether the, the results still continue and we don't do that enough in medicine. I think this is a good example of where it has been done and therefore it's useful for us to know that those really quite remarkable figures that came out of the Italian study don't seem to apply in a North American population, which in the ED is probably close to the population that we see here in Manchester. We've then got one of our philosophy of emergency medicine posts from uh, Stevan Brugens, who is a great colleague, recently working in South Africa, now working in the UK, who talks about how we work with colleagues in the workplace and how perhaps workplace relationships have a really important impact in how we behave, uh, how happy we are and how well our departments work. And I know Stefan's done a lot of work around this. He gives some really interesting advice and and this, this is one of our philosophical posts. So it's not massively high on the evidence, although there is some there, please go and have a look at it. But 
It's about how we behave. So not taking offence when it's not really needed, showing gratitude in the workplace, celebrating good news, talking about our teams and, you know, working together to try and make things better. And you may think this is very obvious, but I travel all over the country, travel all over the world, really. Um, But I certainly do quite a lot of stuff going around the UK Uh, looking at various different departments, not just emergency medicine. And one of the common themes I find is if you look at a a dysfunctional department, if you look at places where people are happy, where the care is poor, where the reports are very, very bad, it's almost always associated with a group of consultants or senior nurses who don't get on. And that's really interesting. Those personal relationships do definitely seem to have a massive effect on how the department runs. And let's face it, that means it has an effect on patient care. And that's why this is absolutely important. It fits in with the civility, incivility kills campaign and all those other things. What we do, our personal behaviours, how we act in the workplace has a real effect. And so have a look at what Stefan's put there. He's put some really great posts together for us recently and have a think about your department. Have a think about how you work and how have a think about how your behaviours could influence those around you. And I've got to say, having read it, it's made me uh, question a couple of things in my own practice and I'm changing how I work. So then we go on to another journal club post. Great. We're trying to do a journal club post every week this year, which is good. Um, and there was one on should we continue ventilations during RSI? Now, this is a really interesting paper. Um, I'm going to summarize it really quickly. But basically, during an RSI, when I was taught originally, I was taught by a very old anaesthetist. And the idea was that you gave thio and suck. So those were the only two drugs you ever gave. Trust me, that was how I was taught. It's not what I do now, but that's how I was taught. And you do not ventilate the patient between the drugs going in and laryngoscopy. So during the apneic period, you don't ventilate the patient because it's considered to be too too dangerous. Now, in fact, for many years, we've not been doing that, particularly in the ED, particularly in those patients who are likely to desaturate. So if you're starting off with SATs of 90 in your really critically unwell patient, you're, for whatever reason, having to intubate now. So a really sick septic patient, and you, you can't resuscitate them any further, and it's really going to be scary. Well, if you don't ventilate them during the apneic period, they're going to be absolutely terribly hypoxic by the end of it. It's not a good plan. Anyway, this is a randomized controlled trial in the ED looking at whether or not it's safe to ventilate during that period. Now, what it tells us is that those patients probably deoxygenate less if you bag them during the apneic period. No great surprise there. They also claim that it's safe. Now, arguably, the numbers are too small for us to tell from this study, but there's certainly no adverse features. And they did look to try and determine whether there was aspiration by laryngoscopy and looking at chest x-rays. It's not a perfect study, but it kind of backs up what we've been doing for a period of time. So have a read of it. Also have a look at some of the other blogs out there, people particularly from the MCRIT site, where they raise some methodological issues. And I think they're fair, but it kind of backs up our practice. So oh, it's terrible, isn't it? When evidence-based medicine is not that good, but it backs up what you believe. What do you do? Oh, I think sadly, we tend to believe it. But there are flaws in this study. But have a read. Make your own mind up, as we always say in emergency medicine. And then lastly, um, post on the 28th of May from Chris Gray, a follow-up really on a previous blog post he did around use of scribes in the ED. So scribes, this is a randomised control trial. It demonstrates that scribes save a bit of time. Not a lot of time. They do save some time and... That's a good thing, I guess, in a really hard-pressed system. There are some questions whether or not the size of the effect in this particular study is enough for us to justify it. But actually, I'm kind of a fan of the idea of scribes. I think the documentation would probably be better. 
So that's a quality issue as much as a quantity issue. I'd be really fascinated to hear about anybody who's using Scribes in the UK. I know in the US it's used a lot more. So that was February. Lots and lots of stuff going on. More in March, including the amazing Smack Conference, which I've now been to, come back from. It was amazing. Trust me. Lots more to talk about that. But for now, I'll give it a rest. I'm sorry it's late. There have been lots going on. Um, I hope you're enjoying your emergency medicine. I know it's tough at the moment. And we will be back with you shortly. Have a great time. Bye. Just before you go, we've got a small favour to ask. Since 2012, we've funded the blog and the podcast and everything around it from our own funds. And it's been great. We've really enjoyed doing it. But the blog and the podcast have grown. And now we've got such bandwidth and such people contacting us from around the world and listening that it's actually starting to get quite expensive. So if you feel like you can contribute even a tiny amount, then just whiz onto the blog, look on there, and you can make a small donation or even subscribe on a regular basis. Even a small amount of cash might make a big difference and help us keep St. Emlyn's free, open access medical education. Thank you for your time. Thank you.